he made me laugh. He, he was funny. This is the Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. Pardon it. Here's your host, Greg Cody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody podcast, episode five. I feel like this is historic. When you reach five, it's a it's a big deal. It's like your fourth birthday and your sixth birthday. Eh, who cares? But when you reach five, it's a big deal. And we're five pods old today. So thank you all for joining us again. We have a great show today, an unusual show in a way. Um, you know, we're, we're going to try to surprise you with this podcast and you never know what you're going to get. And um, so today you're going to get Greg's mail sack. Well, that's one. That's one of our features. We we have a I new just, feature. I just wanted to say it. Yeah, I know you did. You laugh every time you say that. No, Greg's mail sack is a new feature in the pod. We'll do it occasionally, probably not every week. But uh, we have a new uh, Twitter site called the Greg Cody Show. Uh, so we're on Twitter now. It's not a site. It's a it's a Twitter handle. Well, whatever. You now have um, a Twitter and an Instagram account at the Greg Cody Show. Yeah, correct. And through our new Twitter account, we elicited listeners to submit questions and uh, and Christopher picked out uh, the most interesting or silliest or whatever. I, I don't even know what the questions are. Anyway, the opposite of Greg's mail sack, which we hope to be a little bit uh, mirth inducing. We do a serious interview with uh, exclusive interview with Bradley J. Edwards, who is the author of a really exciting uh, new book. It's just out now. It's called Relentless Pursuit, my fight for the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. You all know the Jeffrey Epstein saga. I don't know if they all know the Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein saga. Well, it's this is the Palm Beach uh, multimillionaire. The guy was worth $500 million. Uh, he got arrested for sex trafficking with underage girls. It was just, to people who followed it, uh, I've heard it referred to as the, uh, you know, the most salacious, uh, sensational American trial since O.J. Simpson. And we talked to the, the lawyer who's been representing some of his victims, a guy who knows Jeffrey Epstein very well. I've known the author, Brad Edwards, for years. I know this is the opposite of a sports story, but trust me, it, it's a riveting interview. You're really going to enjoy it. It's enlightening. It's interesting. But first, before we get started with um, uh, either that interview or Greg's mail sack, uh, we're, we're going to talk about <laughs> what we're all dealing with right now, you know, which also is the, the least, not the least bit funny, although we're making the most of it. Uh, I wanted to share with you all a, a few of the things that, that I've been doing while avoiding going stir crazy. Uh, this is just in this week alone. I've tapped into Publix home delivery with my local supermarket. That's a new experience for me. I just Googled the phrase home haircut because I'm about to ask my wife to cut my hair because it's ridiculous. Also, I, I just read a book that I rediscovered in my house that I hadn't read for a couple of decades. It's a wonderful book that I recommend to everyone if you can still find it in stock. It's called Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moon. We're just going to call um, we're going to call this episode book recommendations. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Anybody still with us? And um, but another thing I did this week to kill five minutes and felt so ridiculous. Did you doing did you, it? Wait, do we are we are we done with the haircut? The googling of the self haircut? Like, are you talking well, about well, that? Well, that hadn't that hasn't gotten anywhere. Um, you know, your mother didn't particularly want to cut my hair, and I said, just get it off my ears and cut it in the back. Why don't you just go buzz like a number two all the way? <laughs> 
That's that's hilarious. How do you know what you would look like? I, I, my, I don't have the skull for uh, a super short haircut. What did your brother used to call you when you were kids? The point. <laughs> and uh, thanks for bringing that up, by the way. <laughs> but um, my mother had me late in life. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. What does that mean? You know, I was probably a difficult childbirth. Okay, you know, that's I know. Uh, nothing I've ever born in somebody's shed. I don't know. It's nothing I've ever envisioned before, and I'm not glad that I'm envisioning it right now. Well, good. I'm glad. God rest my mother's soul. Um, <laughs> but uh, can we talk about how we're on Zoom right now? I can't believe we haven't mentioned that yet. We're social distancing right now, and we're yeah, we're we're out of the closet. We're out of each my, other. Uh, closet we've, studio. we've seen each other like on Sunday night for dinner. We're trying to limit our you know, interactions as much as possible. And I just want to tell you, because we've done it a couple of times with the Levitard show and now a couple of times for the Greg Cody podcast, a couple of test trials. I've turned on and sent you Zoom invites probably at least a dozen times now at this point. And you still every time have no idea how to open it. Well, I'm a slow learner. You know, I'm a Luddite. A slurner. Um, <laughs> and I'm catching up to technology in certain ways. I mean, a week ago, I had never heard of Zoom. It was not anything I knew about. And now I'm adjusting to it. I'm learning. Listen, before we leave the times we're in uh, stay-at-home type talk, I just wanted to uh, talk sports a little bit in the context of all that because I wrote last week that the NBA and NHL should just say, we're never going to continue these seasons, nor should we. Basketball and hockey are done. I covered a Florida Derby from home because no fans were allowed, no media were allowed. I mean, it's just ridiculous to have sports going on in the middle of a still rampant pandemic. The Indy 500 just postponed. The NHL draft postponed. Uh, Baseball is figuring out when it's going to restart, if it does at all. So is Major League Soccer. Uh, I'm beginning to think uh, football is in jeopardy uh, of at least starting on time. This is more than sports in the the coronavirus age, which hopefully is short-lived, has become more than health to me it's it's a moral issue you know we don't know how bad this pandemic's going to get and if the death toll ends up being hundreds of thousands in the united states which some projections are that it's just going to be weird to have stadiums full of cheering fans at the very end of all that uh, it's beginning to feel like me to me like sports should just take 2020 off and and let the country devote this year to uh, staying at home to healing, and, and and then sports becomes part of that healing eventually. Obviously, I agree with you that like the, the number one priority should be just fixing this and flattening the curve. My only question to you on that would be, if we're over the curve in two months, why do we need to say right now, let's cancel it for a year when we could just you know keep pushing it back as long as we have to, but right. once we get over the curve, why not bring it back as soon as possible because it makes people feel good? Well, it, sports absolutely will be a part of our return to normalcy and a part of the healing and something we can all look forward to. Uh, and, and I'm not saying right now, shut it all down. What I'm saying is it's beginning to look more and more like that possibility to me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trusting science and, and doctors. Uh, I'm not trusting politicians and the people to make their own decision on this. If the curve is flattened to a point of safety, and Dr. Fauci or somebody where, like where that. It's, where it's trending in the right direction. Because I was listening to him talk with Steph Curry this right. past week. He was saying how we can't think about even worrying about anything like sports until the numbers start decreasing. Because once the numbers right. start decreasing, then it's under control. 
Okay, but certainly I defer to that medical advice. My concern as a layman is, you know, if, if the number starts decreasing, but we're still fighting a serious situation, do you want to start filling up arenas no, with 20,000 people again? I don't think they would. I think, I think sports are going to return with no fans. All right, we're going to agree to disagree on that and move on. Now, I actually, I don't know what you have planned right now, but I was thinking back, I was listening to last week's episode, and you talked a lot about for the 1440 song that Juju Gotti had a snippet of in his current album. Right. And I bet you a good amount of our audience maybe has never heard the Ballad of 1440. Yeah, that could be. Um, it's on YouTube. I think it's the only song ever written called The Ballad of 1440. So if you just Google that name, Ballad of 1440, it comes right up. You can watch it. It's me in my garage in a cowboy hat, and it's a full video. It was really well shot. It was well shot. It was directed by, I think, Chris Cody, the award-winning <laughs> garage director. But it includes uh, photos from my childhood and everything. And uh, I'm sort of proud of it, to be honest with you. Obviously. I think right now we should play at least the snippet that was in Juju Gotti's song. Let's play that right now for the people. Okay. Sweet old faith dream Oh yeah As I told Juju Gotti uh, That octave is a little high On my register Uh, I have another song out uh, A country song called Letting Go Which is uh, Oh stop uh, enough with the self-promotion We get it No 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 I just want to say Letting Go is sung in my natural register Right. It's a deeper, bassier sound. I will say, to, to Juju Gotti's point, I have to admit, I get the feels with that part of the song. Like, you can tell that you're really feeling what you're singing. Well, I am. You know, the, the, the song tells the story. I mean, I grew up, my family didn't have much money. I was a barefoot kid in West Hollywood. My dad was a carpenter. My mom stayed at home. We weren't rich by any means. We were probably less than middle class. I was the first one in my family to go to college. I totally lucked into my career at the Miami Herald, and that led to me being on the air at ESPN. I mean, it's just, it's been sort of a fantastic journey for me that I never expected, and the song tries to capture that. All right, we got to move on here. We've been uh, yammering for too long. All right, so we got two things coming up on the Greg Cody Show today. We have Greg's Mail Sack, the first installment of Greg's Mail Sack, and then (laughs) an an interview with an author, an attorney, Brad Edwards. Which one yeah. do you want to give the people first, Greg? You know, let's do the fun stuff first and the serious stuff second. Uh, now, it's not all serious in the Brad Edwards interview because Brad, you and Brad know each other and you've gone fishing in the past, so I get to the bottom of whether or not you are salt life. So yeah, people, true. Even, if, even if you're not into Jeffrey Epstein, you want to tune into this Brad Edwards interview because at the end of it, I get to prove whether or not Greg Cody truly is salt life or not. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So it's worth sticking around for, believe me, the seriousness of it and uh, the fun stuff at the end. But first, uh, Greg's mail sack, you have to picture, uh, you know, a, an old I'd rather I'd rather not picture it. No, you picture an old timey letter carrier with a, a bag of letters uh, over his shoulder. And that's what Greg's mail sack is on our show website, the Greg Cody show at, you know, on Twitter. We, not website, but Twitter, 
uh, we invite people to tweet in questions for me. And uh, Christopher has picked out a, a few that we're going to answer right now in Greg's mail sack. Let's do it. It's Greg's mail sack. Let's pull your question from the bag and let Greg answer back. That's right, folks. It's Greg's mail sack. We're going to ask Greg some questions that you guys sent in to us. So I'm very excited about this. Greg, are you excited? I am excited, but it, it, there's a little trepidation only because I swear I have not heard these questions. They're going to come out of left field. Hopefully I won't stammer and yammer with my answers. All right. The first question comes from Jared Sweat. He asks, when you put on your socks and shoes, do you go sock, sock, shoe, shoe, or sock, shoe, sock, shoe? Oh, there's a clear answer to that. Sock, sock, and then shoe, shoe. And you always have to start with the left side. Left really? sock, right sock, left shoe, right shoe. And I also have both shoes on before I tie them left to right. All right, moving on. Land K116 asks, how many cases of Miller Lite do you have for the long haul quarantine? <laughs> well, that's a good question because, uh, you know, that, that's up there with, with toilet paper and uh, uh, sanitary uh, disinfectant wipes with me. Got to have it. Um, I'm only going a case at a time right now. Uh, you know, trying to trying to milk that case for all it's worth, but uh, I'm not stockpiling. I, I don't I don't know if you can. You know, maybe there's a limit on that. I don't know, but right now I'm just going one case at a time through my uh, local grocery store home delivery, which has uh, uh, been a godsend. All right, moving on. Kevin Mitchell asks favorite shrimp recipe. Oh my gosh, there are a lot of them. I like a, a simple shrimp scampi to be honest with you yeah. i like uh you know basically in a, in a scampi garlic butter based sauce and then you serve it over linguine is the classic long pasta all right moving on lil gangles asks what's paul radke up to i haven't seen or heard from paul radke in decades for the uninitiated paul radke is the person that you grew up when you would play stratomatic baseball when you were 12 he was 32 no that's not true when i was 12 he was probably 22 uh, still creepy yeah, anyways but now that i look now that i look back on it maybe a little creepy cake band lv asks what's your dream vehicle what was that race car i drove uh in palm beach a couple of months ago a few months ago a Ferrari? Is it a Lamborghini? Oh, Lamborghini, Lamborghini, yeah. Whatever it was, I fell in love with it. I love how you said you fell in love with a car that you couldn't remember. All right, Steel City Blitz asks, what condiments do you have on your fingers? This this harkens to a Lebetard Show topic that we've done, okay. where if you, on your hand, you had the ability to shoot condiments out of each one of your five fingers, mm -hmm. but those are the only condiments that you're going to have for the rest of your life. So you have wow. to choose wisely here. You get five condiments, and I want to know which condiment goes in each finger. Well, uh, you know, the, the, I'm going with the mother sauces of condiments for the most part. Ketchup out of my thumb. Okay. Uh, I love it. You just said that like it was like you were, you were breaking down the brackets for college basketball. <laughs> right. Like yeah. out, of, out of the East region, ketchup on the thumb. That's right. And uh, uh, my index finger is mustard. It has to be classic yellow mustard. Forget the Gouldens and the, you know, Grey Poupon. Just give me some yellow mustard, please. Out of my uh, notorious middle finger, mayonnaise. You know, I, I don't, wow. use, I don't use mayonnaise a lot, but it's, I consider it an essential 
Mother that's condiment. Sh- that's shocking to me. I didn't like. I'm a mayo guy. Like that's that's my number one. I'd say, but like I did not. You, you have not struck me as a big mayo guy growing yeah. up. Yeah. Well, you know, live and learn. On my ring finger, I would use a hot sauce. I would say sriracha. Give me sriracha on there, and then um, on my pinky finger. Boy, that's tough. The fifth one is tough. I would say probably soy sauce or teriyaki. All right. Another question from Steel City Blitz. He asks, overrated or underrated? Ribs. It depends on what kind of ribs. Oh, dear God. (laughs) Are they St. Louis ribs, big ribs? Are they baby back ribs? Just ribs in general. I think ribs are properly rated. I think everybody loves ribs and should. I think they're a little overrated. Do you? Unless they're cooked really well and they're like fall off the bone. You know, I like them. I'm not, I'm just saying in this game, I think they're overrated. I'll take a good burger over a rack of ribs. Oh, really? Wow. That's, uh, I, I love me some ribs. But let me tell you a quick fact about the phrase fall off the bone. If you talk to um, like a professional barbecuer, he will tell you that they should not fall off the bone. They should be extremely tender, but they should not literally fall off the bone like some do. I'm with you on that. I want it to easily come off the bone when I bite it. I don't want it to fall off when I'm picking it up to put it on my plate. Exactly, right. All right, Bobby Mack asks, do you remember the first time you met Dan? Give me a story and your first impressions of him. I don't remember the first time specifically, but my first impression of him was that he made me laugh. He, He was funny. He was sort of nervous when I first met him because he was a young kid and and I was what he wanted to grow up to be. And he looked up to me. I think he was a little awestruck. I, you know, I'm, and I mean that not that there was anything great about me, but he, I was in the, the line of work that he really dreamed of doing. I was sort of in a mentor role. So he was a little nervous around me at first, but we made each other laugh. And, and that's been the basis of our friendship for, you know, 20 plus years. How adorable. It is adorable. All right, that's going to do it for the first installment of Greg's Mail Sack. If you want to send us questions, send us at the Greg Cody Show on Twitter. Send us any questions you want to hear, sports or non-sports. Make sure to use the hashtag Greg's Mail Sack. That's Greg's M-A-I-L Sack. Hey, when we debuted this podcast on March 2nd, we introduced it as a variety show, right? We'd be sports and non-sports. We'd focus on the 305, but also go anywhere interesting stuff was. We'd be silly to serious. The mission is to surprise you, so you aren't quite sure what the menu will be week to week, or even what's around the corner in the next segment each week. Humor is the default go-to. I want to make you smile, especially these days. The change-up is the serious side. So now I'd like you to meet Bradley J. Edwards, Brad to his friends, a Fort Lauderdale attorney whom I've known for a while. Brad and my wife are friends who used to be teammates at the same law firm. We go to his house every year on Christmas Eve for an annual pig roast. We've been fishing together in Alaska. This man also happens to have just written a brand new book just out. It is called Relentless Pursuit, My Fight for the Victims of Jeffrey Epstein. This is an incredible, important, true story. A lot of us just caught up to the Epstein story fairly recently, maybe when the Palm Beach financier worth more than $500 million was arrested last July for sex trafficking in underage girls, or later when he died in prison under suspicious circumstances. But for Brad, 
Helping bring Epstein to justice on behalf of the victims he represents has been a 12-year journey that has consumed his professional life. It's a fascinating tale that I'd like to spend a few minutes sharing with you. Brad, this saga has, has been a big part of your life for like 12 or 13 years. You were approached about Jeffrey Epstein and his crimes way before this became public and turned into what I think might be one of America's most sensational crimes since OJ. Um, this is a, a, a complicated tale full of intrigue and well-connected people and everything. It, it's so complicated that, that you, you wrote a book about it. Tell us how you got involved in this. Yeah, so, so I was called by a friend of mine in Jacksonville who uh, founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He said, I received a call from uh, somebody at the uh, FBI saying there, there was a girl that wanted to talk to a lawyer and she was in pa West Palm Beach. And I said, sure, I'll talk to her. So she, she came to my office. Her name was Courtney Wild. Uh, I now am very close with Courtney. But when I talked to her that day, she walked into my office and basically said, uh, I was abused by this wealthy guy in Palm Beach named Jeffrey Epstein. And it wasn't only me. It was a lot of my friends when we were between 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. And uh, we've been cooperating in this federal investigation. And, and I just want the, the prosecutors to tell me what's going on. So can you kind of get in the middle of it so that I get a status on the case? I thought it was going to be a, a telephone call to the prosecutor who was going to tell me, yeah, he's going to prison forever. And here we are 11 years later, and I guess kind of the world knows a little bit more about it, but it was everything but a simple telephone call. It was weird how it, it really went years without much public attention. He and his crimes began to get the light shown on them, I think, when my own newspaper, the Miami Herald, and its investigative team led by Julie K. Brown began probing and writing about it extensively. You know, I'm very biased, but I believe Julie and her team may win a Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism when finalists are announced next month. In fact, I think you and, and Julie probably were the, the two most important figures in bringing Epstein to justice. When all the light was shown on this, what impact did that have on, on you and the victims who were your clients? Did it make your job harder or easier when all of a sudden maybe reporters were calling you when headlines were happening? It, it, it made it easier. And actually, Ju Julie and I were working in concert with one another. She did an incredible job, but I had been approached by many journalists over the years saying that they wanted to take the story and run with it and expose it so that the public really understood just how bad this guy is right. and also understood that the victims were real people who deserved more than they were getting from the system. So when Julie approached me and said, I want to run with this story, give me a chance, Julie promised, hey, I am not going to be scared. I'm going to expose this. And I could tell from the beginning, she really was that person and she was going to do it. And the piece that she put together in, I think it was around November of 2018, was powerful. And finally, the world saw what I had been seeing for years. And so uh, if Julie and her team doesn't win a Pulitzer, then, you know, she's being robbed. You got to speak and meet directly with Epstein many, many times over the years. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what he was like in those one-on-one -on -one instances how were the meetings on the scale of like cordial to combative? Yeah, so the meetings came about in a funny way. He was very frustrated by the fact that he couldn't control me. And his whole way 
of dealing with people was to control everybody, whether it was the people he was abusing or his employees or other powerful uh, political people. He had to be in control. He was a real control freak. And uh, he, he sent a letter asking if I would just speak with him personally and drop lawyers so that he could basically size me up one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. He thought if he could get that opportunity, that he could convince me to kind of drop the way that I was prosecuting him. So I agreed to talk with him first on the telephone. So he called my cell phone and it just showed up on my cell phone as all zeros, which was super creepy. I still don't know how the guy did it, you know? Right. So I, I didn't answer the phone first and then he just kept calling. Then I finally answered the phone and realized, okay, that all zeros is, is going to be Jeffrey Epstein. He says, look, I want to meet with you in person. And he picked the spot at the uh, Starbucks. And we probably had five or six in-person meetings, all at the same Starbucks and all at the, basically what became our table. And he had different techniques. It was always underlining each conversation was intimidation and to try to force me to leave him alone. But he would say things in a different way. He would say, uh, hey, look, I know that you're a man of fairness. I just want you to be fair to me. And I want you, Brad, to understand I'm being fair to you because I have all of this power, all of these resources. I could destroy you and I'm not, which should tell you that I'm being fair to you. I could put you and your family under surveillance 24 hours a day. I'm not doing that. But if you keep coming at me this way, I'm just letting you know, Brad, somebody is going to get hurt. Wow. What's the most threatened you ever felt? Were you ever worried that cars were tailing you or that, you know, a, a private eye was looking at your home or? After the meeting where he told me somebody's going to get hurt and that he could employ all these resources against me, but he was sparing me, I did start seeing that I was being followed by private investigators. My wife was being followed by private investigators and I was able to get the license tag of one of them, traced it back to his investigator. And the next time I talked to him, I said, hey, look, the last time that we met, you told me you could employ these resources against me, but you weren't. This guy was following me. He's your investigator. And Jeffrey Epstein said, let me get to the bottom of it. And he called me, I don't know, a couple of days later and said, hey, look, I have a lot of people working for me. I don't know what they're doing. Some attorneys that work for me put you under surveillance. But I told them to, to remove it. So, you know, this is just more evidence that I'm a good guy, not a bad guy. I fixed your problem for you. That was his way of trying to fool me into believing he's not that bad, but also showing me he has the power to do whatever he wants and is willing to do. All right. We're talking again with Bradley J. Edwards, author of the, the brand new book, Relentless Pursuit. Brad, on August 10th, 2019, Epstein was found dead in his jail cell while awaiting trial in New York. It was ruled a suicide by hanging, but conspiracy theorists believed and probably still believe he was killed by an inmate or guards. What do you believe? No, he, he committed suicide, and I'm very confident of that. I'm also confident of the fact that had he not committed suicide, somebody eventually was going to kill him. I mean, I, I think it's no secret that so many people wanted him dead, probably the entire world, but he is only going to control everything at all times. And there's no doubt in my mind that he was not going to be a, a, a puppet or a rat in a cage for anybody. And he took his own life. What emotion did you feel when you first heard he died? Mixed emotions, because it took us 11 years to finally 
get him behind bars in a, in, a, in a situation where he would have to be held accountable, our clients felt, you know, some extraordinary relief and that finally he was going to have to face the music when he was able to escape. It was devastating for my clients, but for me, it was different. I mean, I, I had gotten to know him. I had a lot more questions for him. I had always envisioned that I would get to see him in jail and get to meet with him and ask him some of the lingering questions that he had promised to answer for me. And so I felt, I felt robbed. A, a lot of emotions, no matter what you think of somebody, after you get to know them uh, you know, and do battle against them for a decade, you can't help but feel all different kinds of ways. You know, it, it just felt like he really owed it to a lot of people to share why he had done some of the things that he did. When we were talking about his intimidation tactics, this is a an increasingly at the time this was an increasingly desperate pedophile worth more than a half a billion dollars. At any point, did he simply try to bribe you to quit this case? Many times he would offer money to settle the case, and then when I would turn it down, he would get mad and say, "You shouldn't even take the money because at the end of this case, I'm going to financially bankrupt you." which I don't want to have to do. He loved to say how he didn't want to have to hurt me, but he was going right. to have to. And you should just walk away. That's what's best for you. He would try to talk down to me as, hey, this is what's best for you. When that didn't work, he would love to say, hey, look, Brad, you and I are both intellectuals. We can think through this and we can solve this together. It's not a good thing for you to stay involved with somebody as powerful as me. I'll pay you some money to go away. But after that, we need a complete divorce from one another and you should leave me alone for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Those are things he would say to me commonly. Right. The book is Relentless Pursuit and it's out now. Had this gone to trial, what do you imagine his defense would have been? Well, I, you know, I learned a little bit about what his defense would be because of, of our talks. I mean, he had a philosophical belief that, that the laws of of our society are overly conservative and not really built for somebody like him. And I think that based on his philosophy, he would say that, you know, uh, consent is dictated by biology and that he was proud of the fact that he never engaged in any improper uh, conduct with those who were uh, uh, prepubescent. And that, you know, if you really think about the laws in various states, 18 is the age of consent in Florida, whereas 17 is the age of consent in New York, whereas 15 is the age of consent in France. And what is he, what is a man like him supposed to do? Open up a rule book every time that he's having a relationship? That's, that's not fair. It's a ridiculous defense that I don't think would have gotten much traction, but it was his arrogance that he was above the law. It, it, it gives me no doubt that he would have at least tried that, tried to garner some sympathy through that wacky philosophy. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, I can't imagine that flying with many juries. Brad, we, we want to wrap this up, but first, Christopher wants to come in with uh, a question, uh, presumably uh, on the lighter side. Yeah, this is uh, not Epstein related. So Brad used to work with my mom, who's an attorney. And so you guys have had a relationship, you know, don't you go over his house every Christmas Eve, Dad? Yeah, for several years now, we, we go over there on Christmas Eve. Brad has an annual uh, pig roast, which is fabulous. So, and you, you, so you've done that. You guys have traveled to Alaska. And this is what really what I want to ask about. So basically, 
Greg Cody likes to think of himself as everything. He thinks he's salt life. He thinks he's a country soul. And anytime we question him, because he's not salt life at all, and anytime he talks about being salt life, the one thing he holds up is, I've gone halibut fishing in Alaska, and that was with you. So I just want you to express to this audience what a non-salt life person Greg Cody really is. That's funny. We, we had a great uh, fishing trip in Alaska. I don't know how much you know about halibut fishing, but it's not, um, it's not sport fishing out here. But I had the best day on the boat with him. I remember going out and Greg had all kinds of questions about what fishing pole that we were going to use, where <laughs> we were actually going. The guy, the guy finally gets, gets us way out there and he tells us, you know, you're, you're basically fishing on the bottom and there's, uh, you know, there's, there, we're going to be in 300 foot of water. And I'm telling you, he puts the bait on. He, lowers <laughs> he actually it did it? He actually put the bait on himself? Oh, no, sorry. The captain put the bait on <laughs> and, and puts it over. The, it, here's what halibut fishing was. This is what we realized. It goes all the way down. As soon as it gets 300 feet, it basically slaps this halibut who's half dead on the bottom of the water in the head. They bite it 100% of the time, and you start reeling it up. And, and Greg says uh, on his second one, he's like, I caught another one. And the guy looks at him like, of course you caught another one. Like, this is what halibut fishing is. The fish doesn't swim. It doesn't go anywhere. It's straight up. It's, he thought he was a pro because he had caught like 10 halibut in a row. I felt like we were just like snagging uh, sleeping fish on the bottom of the water. Uh, How many jokes did he make during the trip where he said instead of the hell of it, he said the halibut? Oh, I, I think that that's, that's what he said the whole time, it, the halibut. But how about this? We get back on the boat. Greg, do you, I don't know if you remember this. We get back on the boat, and there was a guy who was working there, our bartender, every night, which our bartender was um, like Greg and I's favorite person for obvious reasons. But he had a very long name that we couldn't, um, that we couldn't pronounce. So Greg calls him the first day. He calls him Super T. We come back in from halibut fishing, and Greg comes up to the guy and says, Hey, Super which Greg had given this guy his nickname of Super <laughs> He T. forgot it, and he forgot Greg it. Greg forgot his own nickname Jeez. was already shortening it. By the end of the trip, he's like, hey, Soup, remember I caught so many halibut? I'm a professional. <laughs> I've forgotten Super T. I'm glad. Oh, God. Super T. I'm glad we could um, end, end with a laugh uh, on, on a serious topic. Uh, Brad, you expressed to me sort of a concern that with everything going on, this wasn't a good time. Um, I think the opposite, man. I, there's no better rabbit hole for stay-at-home days than to discover and dive into a compelling new book. Um, for those of you who followed the Epstein saga or want to learn a lot more about it, please consider going online and ordering Relentless Pursuit by Bradley J. Edward Bread. Best of luck with the book, and thanks so much for dropping by the podcast. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks again to Brad Edwards and his new book, Relentless Pursuit. We had some fun today, too. We uh, debuted Greg's Mail Sack, my Q&A with um, listeners who ask me questions. And um, this was episode five. We'll be back with six next week. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Family, I appreciate you guys coming aboard. I hope for a half hour each week uh, we're making challenging times uh, a little bit more fun for you. And we're going to see you all back here next week on The Greg Cody Show. Cha-cha. Wait, why did I say cha-cha? What does that mean? I meant to say bye-bye. I never say cha-cha. I, 
<laughs> I I have a great fear that you're going to leave that in. I might have to leave this in too. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Turn off that tape. Seriously. All right. See you all next week. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. <laughs>